This is the Mahabharata Podcast, Episode 37, The Markandeya Sessions, Part 1. Last time, we covered the Pandavas' trip back to where they started their exile, in the Kanyaka Woods. Along the way, Bhima went hunting and was captured by a magic snake. Inexplicably, Arjun stays home while Yudhishthira goes out to save his brother. It turns out that they made the right decision, because only Yudhishthira was able to answer the snake's question and win Bhima's freedom. Yudhishthira and the snake really hit it off, and they end up discussing all sorts of philosophical questions. I should say that the philosophy given here is not quite the same that we've heard in other parts of the book. In fact, I would characterize the snake's philosophy as more liberal or possibly modern than what we heard before. For instance, Yudhishthira takes the radical stance that one's caste is dependent more on one's actions than one's birth. As for the snake, he believed that one could attain heaven only by good actions and good intentions. He makes no mention of either austerities or sacrifices. This is a far cry from the sages like Vishvamitra, who stormed the gates of heaven by the strength of their asceticism. There's one other detail from the story of the snake that touches on something that I've been thinking about for quite a while. It has to do with the strange correlation between the five brothers and the five extremities of the human body. In the last episode, when Bhima was held captive by the snake, one of the omens Yudhishthira felt was a pain in his right arm. This rang a bell with me, because Arjun is often referred to as the left-handed archer. It seems like it really isn't much of a leap to associate the five brothers with the five extremities of an ideal man. Yudhishthira, the wise head, Bhima, the strong and aggressive right arm, Arjun, the skilled left arm, and the twins would each be a leg. The brothers may have had different fathers, but we've been told that they are each of them incarnations of Indra. Apparently, like the first man, Purusha, Indra was divided up into five parts to make up our five heroes. By the end of last episode, the Pandavas returned to the Kanyaka woods, where they had started their exile ten years earlier. Soon after, Krishna showed up, and this time he decided to stay a while, along with his main squeeze, Satyabhama. Shortly after Krishna arrived, the sages Markandeya and Narada showed up as well. Yudhishthira, always a kiss up to holy men, begged them for a sermon, stories, or anything else they might have to say. Markandeya's name has shown up a few times already, but like Narada, he usually wanders in, makes a speech or delivers news, and then wanders off again. This time, he had a lot to talk about. Markandeya must have been an awkward fellow, because there seems to have been an awkward silence when he settled down. Narada tried to get the ball rolling by saying to Markandeya, Tell the Pandavas what you wish to tell them, Brahman seer. Markandeya replied, Then sit back, because I have much to say. He then went silent again. Feeling uncomfortable, Yudhishthira then attempted to prime the pump. He said, Sir, you are familiar with the exploits of the gods, daityas, sages, and kings. Right now, Devaki's son is here too, and we have waited a long time to hear you. The Pandava then riffed on a subject that no self-respecting Hindu would fail to be interested in. He said, When I look at my situation, where I have fallen so low while the Dhartarastras are prospering, the thought occurs to me that man is the agent of all acts, for good or for evil, and that he reaps his reward. So how can God act on anyone? Is it true that one's good and evil actions follow him from life to life? How is it that after a soul has shed its body, its past actions can follow it to its next life, and where are all these actions recorded? It will remain to be seen whether Markandeya actually manages to answer all of these intriguing questions, but it was certainly enough to get him started. He started in first by giving a sort of spiritual history of mankind. The sage said that in the beginning, all creatures were immaculately pure and obedient to Dharma. They traveled freely through heaven and on earth. The ancients all chose when to die, and could live forever if they wanted to. They lived freely with fulfilled and healthy lives. In the course of time, however, men lost sight of heaven and the divine beings. 
They became tied to the earth realm, were beset by lust, fear, and anger, and lived by deceit. After a wicked life, they were reborn as animals. Thus tied down by their evil ways, they lost their faith and continued to be reborn in misery. Mark and Dea said, You asked me where one's actions are recorded, and how can they affect you in the next life? First of all, know this. At the end of life, the soul abandons the body and is instantly reborn in another womb. There is no intermission. His actions follow him like a shadow, and their influence affects his development and prospects. Mark and Dea then began to spell out what one might expect in their next life based on their overall lifestyle. He said that if one lives a mediocre but upright life, plays by the rules, stays clean, and is generally kind, honest, and generous, then you can expect to be reborn in a noble family with good prospects. You would then have a chance of re-entering heaven by the end of that life. Mark and Dea said, People with great wealth enjoy themselves daily. They own this world, but not the next. Those who practice yoga and study the Vedas have given up this world, but the next world will be theirs. As for householders who live by their dharma, earning a living honestly, have children and perform their rites, they win this world and the next. Finally, those people who do not bother to study or improve themselves and fail to beget children, this world is not theirs, nor is the next. The Pandavas loved hearing about this stuff. They begged Markandeya to tell more about Brahmins. Markandeya replied with a short anecdote about a king who was out hunting and accidentally shot and killed a Brahmin ascetic who was clad in a deerskin. The king and his followers repentantly searched for their victim's relatives and finally came across a Brahmin hermit named Tarkshya Arshtanemi. The king confessed to this sage that he had accidentally killed the hermit's son. The hermit then asked him to produce the body, but the king's servant suddenly couldn't find it. The Brahmin then summoned his son and asked, Is this the one you were looking for? The king and his retinue were all stunned at the sight of the boy, returned from the dead. The king asked the hermit how this was possible. Tarkshya said, Death holds no power over us. The reason for this is that we only think of the truth. We are devoted to our dharma, and therefore we do not fear death. This story was way too short to satisfy the Pandavas, so they demanded more Brahmin stories. Markandeya's next story involved two Brahmins. One of them, named Atri, was a city dweller with a keen interest in receiving gifts from kings. The other, named Gautama, was a fastidious ascetic who lived in the wilderness. One day, the local king began preparations for an Ashvamedha horse sacrifice. This was bound to be a spectacle as well as a financial opportunity for the local Brahmins, so both Atri and Gautama were in attendance. The place was crawling with Brahmins, so Atri needed to do something to get the king's attention. When the king was in earshot, Atri stood up and shouted, Sire, great king, you're first among all the kings of the earth and master of Dharma. Gautama was annoyed at Atri's bald-faced attempt at flattering the king, so he shouted him down, saying, Sit down and be quiet. Have you gone soft in the head? Only Indra stands first before all creatures. The two began arguing and causing a disturbance in their ritual proceedings. The king hadn't even heard Atri's lame attempt at flattery, but now he took notice, as these two ascetics were messing up his sacrifice. The king summoned the two to find out the dispute and to mediate. Gautama told them what had been said, and the king handed the matter over to the wisest Sadasya to adjudicate. The withered old ascetic said, Brahmins are allied to the Kshatriyas, and Kshatriyas are allied to Brahmins. The king is our supreme dharma and the master of his subjects. To his people, the king is Shakra and Shukra, the creator, sovereign lord, and guardian of men, all rolled into one. A king is necessary for the maintenance of law and order, which is why even the sages have entrusted power in them. Thus, the sadhu ruled in favor of the scoundrel Atri. The king was pleasantly surprised by this turn of events. He addressed Atri and said, 
You had stated that I was supreme among men and equal to the gods. Therefore, I shall give you vast riches, 1,000 slave girls, 100 million in gold, and 10 loads of gold ornaments. Atri happily received the treasure and then apparently had a change of heart. He handed the wealth over to his children and then left for the woods to join Gautama in poverty and asceticism. Now that Markandeya was on a roll, Yudhishthira wanted to keep him going. So he made another request. Tell us about Manu Vivashvata. Markandeya said, There was a son of Vivashvat named Manu. He was a great sage whose power, splendor, and austerity surpassed even his father and grandfather. One time he spent 10,000 years standing on one foot, arms raised and unblinking. At the end of this session, a fish swam up to him in the nearby river and spoke to him. It said, My lord, I'm just a tiny fish, and I'm afraid of the big fish. The big fish always eat the small ones, and I'm terrified for my life. Filled with compassion, the sage took the little fish out of the river and put him in a jar, where he kept it and fed it and loved it like a son. Soon the fish grew too big for the jar, so Manu put it in a pond, where the fish continued to grow larger. After a while, the fish was too big for the pond, so he was transferred to the Ganga River. He continued to thrive there and eventually grew too huge to turn around even in the mighty river. Again, the fish begged Manu for help. This time, he requested to be moved to the ocean. Manu was a powerful guy, so even moving this enormous creature was no problem for him. Markandeya said that to Manu, the fish was easy to carry and pleasant to touch and smell. When he tossed the beast into the ocean, it turned and spoke to Manu. It said, Soon, my lord, everything on earth will be destroyed. For the time is near for the cleansing of the earth. You must build an ark and load up the seven sages, plus all the seeds of all the creatures should be put in the ark. Then wait for me here. When I come back, I'll be wearing a horn on my forehead. It doesn't say whether the fish went off and grew this horn for the purpose, or if he just stuck one on like a hat, but he was true to his word. Manu built his ark as instructed, and somehow collected all the seeds and the seven sages and launched the boat out into the ocean. While the boat floated among the ocean waves, a giant inundation swept over the earth and drowned all the land. Manu then telepathically called on his fish friend, and the fish rose up out of the waves, wearing a giant horn on his forehead, just like he promised. The fish told Manu to sling a rope around the horn, and by means of this line, he towed the ark across the sea. After years of sailing, the waters gradually receded until the highest peaks of the Himalayas were finally above the water. The fish then towed the ship to this tiny spot of land and had them moor the ship there. Manu thanked the fish for having guided them through the storm, and then the fish made a confession. It said, I am Brahma, the lord of all creatures. In the guise of a fish I saved you from danger. Now it is up to Manu to create all the creatures, the gods, the asuras, and men. Perhaps anxious to get back to his original blissful form, the fish then vanished. The fish was in a little too much of a hurry, though, because it turned out that Manu had no idea how to create all these beings from the piles of mysterious seeds he had in his boat. Unsure how to proceed, the old sadhu turned to the tricks that had helped him in the past. He starved himself and performed yoga until he finally figured out what to do. We are not told what revelation he had, so we only know that Manu finally figured out how to create all the plants, animals, gods, and spirits, and then he proceeded to do just that. Markandeya called that story the Purana of the Fish. It obviously bears some kind of relationship with the stories of Gilgamesh and Noah, but with far less details. I do like the added touch in that the Ark only carries some kind of seeds from which all life forms could be regenerated. It sounds like some kind of DNA or sperm bank, and it makes a lot more sense than trying to cram the boat with thousands of varieties of livestock, which is what poor Noah had to do. That's all for now. 
Next episode, we'll keep going with more stories from Markandeya. Thanks for listening. <laughs>